by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Welcome to Think Sustainability. I'm Miles Herbert. Today on the show, we take a look at how the surface temperatures of the Indian Ocean might help paint a picture of the upcoming tropical cyclone season and how the lack of measurement might be leaving us in the dark on just how many cyclones will impact Australia this year. Australia is affected by the Indian Ocean, the other side by the Pacific, and one is heavily instrumented, the other is not. So hence the push and the excitement about the fact that the Indian Ocean will become instrumented in the same way that the Pacific Ocean is. But first, illegal logging is an immensely profitable global activity linked to corruption, human rights abuses, criminal networks, and environmental destruction. Australia imports around $8.1 billion worth of timber products a year, and according to estimates from the Department of Agriculture and Water Resources, up to $800 million comes from sources that have been illegally logged. Yet, the federal government is currently considering significantly weakening regulations that prevent the import of illegal timber. I spoke with Dr. Beatrice Garcia de Oliveira, lecturer in the School of Law at the University of Western Sydney, about how watering down logging laws will cause harm to both people and nature. Yes, okay. So we have uh, basically two important pieces of legislation. One has been adopted in 2012, and it's called the Illegal Logging Prohibition Act. Then following the act, we have the Legal Logging Prohibition Regulation that provides further details and the actions that have to be taken to implement the Legal Logging Prohibition Act. And what do those laws do? What do they protect? Okay, so they have been adopted to prevent illegal logging from entering into the Australian market. So for preventing illegal logging from being imported for producer countries from countries where the timber is being harvested. And what is illegal logging? Like, you know, it's illegal, obviously. But what, yes. what makes a logging practice legal and what makes a logging practice illegal? Right. So, okay, so it's a good question. Illegal logging is defined under the Act as any activity that is against the laws of the country where the harvest, where the log is, where the timber is harvested, is taken from. So if logging in those countries where the, the, the timber is harvested is against the laws of the country, then it's defined as illegal logging. Okay. So in practice, it means, for example, that timber is taken in areas where they shouldn't haven't been taken from, for example, in protected areas, or when timber is taken uh, without the licenses or without a management plan or really any activity that goes against the laws of the country where the timber is coming from. And how widespread is illegal logging? So illegal logging is a very widespread problem. It's a global problem, actually. So we have recent studies showing that it's the third largest global crime, just after counterfeiting and drug trafficking. So it's a, an activity that happens everywhere. And in terms of value, you know, sometimes yeah, billions or sometimes even trillions of dollars. So it's something that is really quite profitable and something quite big, actually. 
And why do we have that, these laws in the first place? What do they protect against? Why do we have laws that protect against legal logging? Okay, so well, we have those laws uh, that have been adopted in developed countries. So Australia is one country, but there are all the developed countries that have also adopted those laws to prevent illegal logging from coming from producer countries that are normally developing countries, okay? So, for example, in Europe, we have the European Timber Regulation. In the U.S., we have regulation that is called the U.S. Lassay Act. So the idea and the objective of those regulations is to stop to preventing illegal timber for coming into their markets. So it's like to protect forests, not just in Australia, but also forests and land clearing in other countries. That's right, yes. One issue that we have here in Australia is that this Illegal Logging Prohibition Act of 2012 has never really been fully implemented. And this is because since it's, since the start of the act, since it was came into force, the government adopted something called soft start period. So it means that businesses are not being imposed penalties for not complying with the Act. So it means in practice that the Act has not been fully implemented. And it's still the case, you know. So when we compare the regulation in Australia with other laws, for example, in Europe or in the United States, the difference is that in Australia, we are not really implementing the law yet. So that's one of the problems, yes. Why doesn't the government enforce it? Because, uh, okay, there has been a discussion since the beginning of the law, actually, that the law will be very costly and very hard for businesses, especially small businesses, to comply with. So in Australia, we have been discussing about ways to make it simpler and cheaper for businesses to comply with the law. And because this discussion is still going on, the government decided to have this called soft start period so that businesses don't have to comply with the law until we have those changes that we might introduce to the law. The onus of complying with the law will be mostly on businesses. And this is a very important point because what I see is that for this law to be really well implemented and enforced, the government will have to provide some assistance to businesses, especially small businesses, to allow them to, to really comply with the law. So, for example, they have one requirement where they have to prove that the the timber is, is legally sourced from countries where they are importing the timber from. And this is something hard for businesses to do, especially small businesses. So the government will have to provide, I guess, some assistance to make sure that they can really comply with those requirements. Otherwise, it becomes too onerous and too difficult for the, those businesses to really comply with the law. How do you prove that it's legal timber? Well, you have to... So there are basically three steps that you have to take. It's called a due diligence requirement under the Act. The first step is to gather information, all information you can gather about the timber that that you're importing. Second, you have to to identify if there are any risks. Okay, so for example, if the timber is coming from countries that traditionally have illegal activities happening. So this is, you know, a a high risk of that timber being imported from those sources and, you know, high risk of the timber being illegal. Third step is for you to mitigate the risks. So when you see that there are problems, then you have to try to mitigate the risks. And if the risks are too high, then the businesses should not import that timber. So that's what uh, businesses have to do. 
And in Australia, in terms of moving forward mm -hmm. on illegal logging legislation, mm -hmm. yeah. are we moving forward or are we moving backwards? Yes, well, w w my point is that ideally the, the law should be implemented so that these due diligence requirements should be fully implemented as they are. They should stay as they are. We shouldn't introduce things such as deemed to comply arrangements with certification schemes. And this is because certification schemes, they and the government recognizes that as, as well. So those schemes, they also have difficulties in making sure that the timber is really legal. It's not coming from corruption or illegal activities in different countries. So the due diligence requirements should be as they are. And probably my last point would be that Australia has to give the law a chance. So really implement the law as soon as possible. And once the law is implemented and is really implemented by different businesses in Australia, then we'll know what works, what doesn't work and what really needs to be improved in relation to that law. So, yeah, we should fully implement the law and see what are the things that work and what are the things that need to be improved. From my understanding, there are some people who want these laws to become even more lax. That's right, yes. So one of the uh, arguments here is that this law is too complicated, it's very hard for businesses to comply with the law, it's going to be very expensive for, for businesses to really comply with the law. So these are all arguments that are used for us to make that law weaker. What happens if the laws get relaxed and illegal timber is allowed to come into Australia. Okay, so I guess, you know, if these activities continue to be allowed in any way, then, as I said, there is still be a market for illegal logging and illegal timber. So these activities are likely to continue in producer countries or even to increase in developing countries. It's a combination of environmental impacts and also there are problems related to human rights. So in, in general, illegal logging happens in ways that are unsustainable. Okay, so they don't follow, for example, forest management plans. So what happens when illegal logging occurs is that carbon emissions are a consequence of those activities. So as we take the, the trees out of the forests, then we have carbon emissions going to the atmosphere and carbon emissions coming from what is called land use changes is the second biggest source of carbon emissions just after the energy sector. So it's a very huge problem in terms of the environment. And also illegal logging is normally related to human rights violations. So it involves sometimes forced labor. So people uh, don't have any protection when those activities are happening or sometimes the displacement of people. So all kinds of problems can happen in that area as well. So it's it can be a problem for the environment, also for the people. Do you think that it's our responsibility in Australia to tighten up our laws here to protect countries around the world? Yes, I think it's our responsibility in Australia to make sure that, that those laws are implemented, are enforced, as it happens in other countries, as it is happening, for example, in, the, in European countries, in the United States as well. So, for example, if you take the U.S. as an example, they are already uh, imposing penalties on uh, companies that have been importing timber from countries where illegal logging is happening. For example, they impose penalties on, for example, a guitar company that was importing timber from Madagascar 
or from a flooring uh, timber company that was uh, importing timber from Russia and Myanmar. So these things are already happening in practice. So the consequence is that the industry becomes more aware and more compliant with the law. So we are seeing the, so the experience is showing that when these laws are implemented and are, they're being enforced, there is a change in the behavior of the industry and it's a positive change. So that's what we want to see in Australia as well. Dr. Beatrice Garcia de Oliveira, ending that story. I'm Miles Herbert, and you're listening to Think Sustainability. Coming up after the break, why we don't measure the surface temperature of the Indian Ocean and how that might be preventing us from preparing for the tropical cyclone season. Welcome back to Think Sustainability. I'm Miles Herbert. Australia has just entered the tropical cyclone season. The Australian Bureau of Meteorology says a typical number of tropical cyclones is expected this year, with 10 to 13 forming in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, and a likely four crossing the coast and impacting land. But the ABM says the chances of more than a typical number of cyclones hitting the coast of Australia is just over 50%, which, according to Lance Leslie, professor from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. And I, I moved from the university in Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, to UTS because of my skill in atmospheric science really means the Australian Bureau of Meteorology has no idea if we should be expecting more cyclones than the yearly average. I spoke with Lance about the start of the Australian cyclone season and about how changing the way we measure sea level temperatures might help us better understand when cyclones will hit our shores. Officially, it's defined as commencing in November 1, which is today, and ending on April 30. But storms do occur out of season on occasion, like before November 1 and after, after April 30. But by and large, the first ones are more common in December. In fact, the mean time of uh, the first landfalling tropical cyclone is well into December. Have these seasons fluctuated over time? Has it always started on November 1st? Uh, the definition of the season has. The activity varies because there, there are natural modes in the atmosphere depending on how strong they are and what phase they're in. It can delay the season start or shorten it or lengthen it or have it occur early. So we're highly dependent on what are known as large-scale climate drivers of which the, the most well-known one is ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. In the La Nina mode, which is the so-called cold mode, the seasons tend to be a bit more active because the warmer water near the Australian coast enhances the possibility of tropical cyclones forming. We're in a neutral ENSO year, so it's not giving us much information as evidenced by the, the Bureau's official forecast of just over 50% likelihood of more storms than, you, than the long-term average. And how do they measure cyclones, the possibility of cyclones? They use a number of predictors of which El Nino Southern Oscillation, the mode, 
is a key factor, but they use other features as well, like the sea level temperatures around the Australian coastline. And how do they use them to come up with that just over 50% number? Mostly using a process called multiple linear regression, which is finding correlations between the sea surface temperature anomaly, whether the sea surface temperatures are above or below normal or near, near normal, and these are known to have associations with tropical cyclone numbers. Are there other ways to measure it that might give us a better picture of the possibility of cyclones forming around Australia? Yeah, some recent work I've done and some other people in Australia and elsewhere around the globe is looking more closely at the role of the Indian Ocean and I recently published a paper with some co-authors showing that the Indian Ocean is a key player in determining tropical cyclone frequency, intensity and so on. So it's a major player in the tropical cyclone season in Australia. So what's going on in the Indian Ocean that makes... Depends on the sea surface temperature distribution. If the sea surface near Australia is anomalously cool, you're less likely to have an active season because sea surface temperatures are are a driver of all the anomalies, whether it's warmer than average or colder than average. Warmer than average tends to enhance possibility of tropical cyclones. Cooler than average tends to suppress. So why have we not previously used the Indian Ocean as a marker for this? The main reason is that the Pacific Ocean, which is where ENSO occurs, has been extremely well instrumented for quite a while. The Indian Ocean has not been well instrumented, and as a consequence, not a lot of confidence was placed in its role. It's only in recent times that people have started to look carefully at the Indian Ocean as a major player in Australian tropical cyclone season. Why do you think that there is this gap in in measurement? Uh, This seems pretty vital, right? Like cyclones cause tremendous amount of damage, both economic and personal. Why is there this this oversight in measurement? I think it's the biggest factor is cost. One of the important advantages the the US, for example, has is that they have reconnaissance aircraft. So every season the aircraft go, if, if there's sign of a tropical cyclone or disturbance forming, they'll send out the reconnaissance planes. Australia does not have any reconnaissance planes. It has some occasionally. It's very expensive to run reconnaissance aircraft, and the U.S. has far more financial resources than any other country for for this kind of work. So it's it's pretty much a matter of economics. Australia is affected by the Indian Ocean, the other side by the Pacific, and one is heavily instrumented, the other is not. So hence the push and the, the excitement about the fact that the Indian Ocean will become instrumented in the same way that the Pacific Ocean is. And that means we'll all be safer and better informed. Better informed, yeah, and uh, which should lead to earlier warnings and preparation. Lance Leslie, professor at the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. This program was produced on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR Radio and heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I've been Miles Herbert. I'll catch you guys again next week.